Okay, so how many people have actually taken time out to study the feasts in the Old Testament? Nobody? Anybody? Okay, Genesis. Yeah, if you have not, I would wonder why they gave you your name, Genesis. But yeah, um, this is quite interesting. Anybody else? I know Lola mentioned something like that yesterday. Um, there are feasts in our welcome pack on um, Avarius. Yeah, I've gone. Have you taken time to do? Yes, I have, but I think it's it's a lot. (laughs) I have to go back again. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, anybody else? Never again. <laughs> okay, never. Okay, so I, I I don't want to assume, but I'm just going to ask as a question. Okay, okay, a little study on Shabbat. Okay, okay. I don't want to assume, but I'm so at this point I'm like most of us haven't actually paid mind to the feast, you know. So most of us haven't paid mind to the feast. We don't we don't care about it. Yeah. You don't care about it though, you've never paid mind to it. Which one? Ah, I've never paid mind to it though. Not that I don't care about it. But you celebrate Easter. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And you never asked like what's the idea of Easter? What's the concept? Um, I for me, I always just um relate it to you know the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and okay. I, I paid mind to that so to say because it's like yeah. basically the foundation of my testing. But I know that yeah, whatever I've paid mind to, we're going to dig deeper tonight. So basically, I've not paid mind to it because I know that something else is gonna happen tonight. So yeah. You say something else is gonna happen. Okay. <laughs> Amen. Oh yeah, we did something on Rosh Hashanah last year. Rosh Hashanah is like the new year. So I'll explain, I'll explain all the feasts so that we can actually um, you know, get on see how, what it's like. I will most likely share my screen. So you I did like a, a little, I did a little study like some time ago, I think some time ago, after I had a first session, it wasn't the first, but I had the first session of BSB on the feast. Um, I did like a little study guide on it. So I'm going to share my screen so we can see it so that we probably don't think that I'm saying rubbish. Um, I'm sharing my Word document now. I don't know if you can see it. Okay, most likely you can see it. Okay, this wasn't on the Passover. This was a session on Pentecost, which is called Shabbat. Um, But Passover is spelled P-E-S-A-C-H. I'm going to zoom my screen. I'm going to zoom in so that you can see what it is like. Okay. So please let me know if you can see it. I'll zoom into a particular point. Um, 
So we're just going to focus on, on this. Can you see the screen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, so these are the feasts. There are seven major feasts that we probably celebrate. We don't celebrate. It somehow pops up. We are part of it one way or the other. Um, whether we like it or not, we celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. We just don't call it the Feast of First Fruits in Christianity or in Christendom. We call it um, the Resurrection Sunday. Um, and there's a reason it's called Resurrection Sunday, but I, I mean, apparently just going back to the original context would give us a deeper appreciation for what that is about. And just like, it's absolutely fascinating. So um, we have the Passover, which is the first, first feast. Um, and we'll see this, we'll go to the text. It's the first, first feast ever. So the Passover or in Hebrew is called Pesach. Um, and literally this happens on the 14th day of the first month. The first month in Hebrew, according to the Hebrew calendar, is the month Nisan, which is N-I-S-A-N. And I, I'll break it down. Please don't, don't worry in case anybody's already panicking. The second feast that we have is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread literally will also see it very, very close to the Passover feast. We actually celebrate this as the communion or the day that Jesus Christ broke bread with his disciples. But then this was also in the Old Testament and it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also called Mazop. Um, and it is the next day after Passover. So it's literally very, very, it's in fact less than 24 hours from Passover. And most people tend to celebrate it together so that's why, in, in, again, in our churches, we see that on Easter Sunday or Easter weekend, you know, we tend to break bread, there's communion, there's all these things. They all come from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, the next feast that we have is the Feast of the First Fruits. The Feast of the First Fruits is called the Korean. Bikurin literally is what in Christianity we call the um, Resurrection Sunday. Bikurin happens on the is on Thursday. Bikurin will be on Sunday. If Passover, Bikurin will be on Sunday. So you start to calculate the first Sunday after Passover. That again, it takes place in the spring. Um, after the Feast of the First Fruit, the next thing that we have is Pentecost. Pentecost is what we call Shavuot. Shavuot is 50 days from Passover. So you're going to count 49 days from Passover. On the 50th day, that is the day of Pentecost. So oftentimes we even tend to see, uh, maybe we, we don't really celebrate it in the Western church, but it is a very, very, very vital, you know, um, feast. Last year was the first time that most believers and most people around the world actually paid mind to the Feast of Pentecost, but it's also a very, very significant um, moment because we see that happening or being um, fulfilled you know, not fulfilled. We see that being fulfilled or being experienced by the disciples of Jesus. So again, Pentecost is from the Hebrew word Shavuot. And the word Penti, when you think of Penti, it's from, it literally means 50. So Pentecost is 50th day, literally. That's what it means, 50th day after Passover. Now, after Pentecost, we have something called the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits apparently falls in the fall or in the fall um, um, season, basically. So the first three 
feast is in the spring. The first, the next four feasts or the next three feasts is in the fall. I don't know if that makes sense. So feast of Passover, I'm sorry, feast of Passover is in spring. Feast of unleavened bread is in the spring. Feast of the first fruits is in the, in the spring. Then you have the Pentecost is late spring. And then the next thing you have is the feast of trumpets, which, which maybe you've probably even heard of it, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah takes place in the fall. Rosh Hashanah literally is like a new year. You know, it's like a day of celebration and it's the enthronement of God as king over Israel. This was how it was recorded biblically in the Old Testament. Then after Rosh Hashanah, the next thing that you have is called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, you see Yom Kippur, um, you know, in the book, especially in the book of Ezekiel, I'm sorry, in the book of yeah, in the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, you also see Yom Kippur in the book of Ezekiel as well. You see Yom Kippur um, in the book of Samuel, actually. Um, after Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is literally called the Day of Atonement. It's literally the day when everybody comes before the Lord and cries out for mercy. This is how it was traditionally. Um, I hope I'm not missing nobody's missing or anything. Then after Yom Kippur, the last feast or the crowning feast is what you call the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is also called Sukkot. Um, we'll see that it's so gloriously painted. I really personally, I love the Feast of Sukkot. Um, I love it so much. Like it's actually one of my favorites, like how it played out is so beautiful. And we've probably also studied when Jesus rose up in the tabernacle and he got in the temple, sorry. And he said, I am the living water. If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And um, the Feast of Tabernacles literally points to water the living water which is life and Jesus Christ when he declared that he was living water he declared this on the feast of tabernacles um, it's quite beautiful and we even also see that in book of revelations chapter 7 as well um, absolutely absolutely incredible so the seven feasts um, I'm just going to run through them again they are divided into two seasons so you have the first three seasons and the first three feast on spring and then you have the last three feasts on fall and then you have the feast of pentecost it takes place during the late spring so you have the first one which is the passover then you have the unleavened bread then you have the feast of the first fruit then you have the pentecost which is the 50th day then after the pentecost you have the feast of um you know, trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah. And after Rosh Hashanah, you have Yom Kippur. And after Yom Kippur, the final feast is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Trumpets, sorry, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Sukkot. So does anybody have any thoughts, questions or anything before we dive into what the Passover is and why on earth is this even relevant in our lives in this time, especially when I'm looking for a job? Um, oh, amazing. <laughs> Amazing, Inaya. Are you serious? The Young People War. Um, I'll actually like to hear more about this. Yes, Seventh Feast that you can. Okay, so let's start with the Passover. Amazing. Um, okay. The Passover, we're going to start from the scripture, Exodus chapter 12. I know we read this a lot. We probably read it, read it so many times, um, you know, but it's, it's absolutely incredible how so many things are hidden, you know, within the text. 
Um, so oftentimes when I'm studying or when I'm studying with people, I always encourage people to cross to um, compare translations. So for example, if you're using um, maybe NLT, also compare with KJV in your Bibles, um, can compare with KJV, compare with Amplified um, you know, version. Um, I know several times I've recommended um, Orthodox Jewish Bible and Complete Jewish Bible for anybody that is interested in seeing um, the text from a very, very closely related um, language. Um, so, so yeah. Um, we're going to read Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I'm sorry, my phone is. Okay. This is weird. My phone is acting up. Do you want someone else to read it for you? Oh, yes, please do, if you're there. Thank you very much. From where? If anyone is there, please feel. I'm from one, from verse one. Exodus 12. We're going to see. KJV, what translation do you want? Anyone. Um, just just let, let's know what okay. translation you're reading from so that, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm reading from KJV. So it says, and the Lord... Or let me do you feel like you're in church? Yeah, I don't feel like doing fake spoke today, so let's just do ASB. Says, the Lord said to Thank Moses you. and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make um, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they say, should I continue? Yes, please go on. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on, on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, roasted, but roasted its head with, it, with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you were, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and mm. you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove 
leaving out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaving from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but whatever everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is, is to be found in your houses. Have I read this already? Okay. No. Uh, <laughs> it's repetitive. Um, for seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leaven in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select the lambs for yourselves, according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the, door, the two doorposts which the blood that is, with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house or his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of Egypt, of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Shall I continue? Yes, I turned. <laughs> I'm not tired, I'm just trying. <laughs> I just don't want to miss the cues. Okay. Okay, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And, the, and Pharaoh rose in the night, rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, but there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both, of, both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they have they asked. First they, plundered, first they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. And mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much, like, very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes out 
um, of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And, the end of four, and at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised them. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near it and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on the very day, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Amazing, you did it. Congratulations. <laughs> you did thank it. You, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, Thank you so much. I'm actually hoping that in going through this text, we're actually seeing things that we never really paid mind to before. Is anybody having that experience at all? Like you're actually seeing things that you just didn't see before. Anybody? Definitely. Right, Genesis, okay. No, like I'm seeing. Sorry? Like I'm not seeing things I didn't notice before. That's why I mean, that's why I raised my hand. Mm. Amazing. Do you want to say what you saw or what you've seen? <laughs> what I saw is I've not read. <laughs> you've not read. <laughs> what did you see? I didn't get you. Okay. It's felt me. I don't am I clear? Sorry? Yes, you're clear now. I said it felt new, like most of the information, most of the things I heard now, because I've not read it in such a long time. So it felt like I've never heard most of them before. So that's like the bread, how um, foreigners, the only foreigners that were allowed to, that were supposed to eat it, were the ones that had been circumcised. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Sid said she's reading Exodus, but she's never, she hasn't reached it. I've not reached it. <laughs> That's funny. Motoraya, what, what are you seeing here that you've not seen before, taking note of before? Um, I didn't take note of the fact that first, the Lord commanded them to eat it in haste. And when mm -hmm. Pharaoh sent them out, he sent them in haste. Like that connection, I did not actually notice before. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. When people when bringing the people out, yeah. I mean, did anybody also um, notice the part that said that? Um, um, sorry, 
the part that talks about the Lord's hosts leaving Egypt. Did anyone notice that? Did anybody notice that? Yes, I noticed. But yeah. then I thought that it was I noticed, but I then I when I when I when I listened to her read that part, I thought that it mm. was talking about the Israelites leaving Egypt. That's the people they were referring to as the host of the Lord. Mm. Yeah. But the interesting thing about this uh, it, it was mentioned prior. Um it was mentioned prior to this being mentioned here. Um, I think this was in the beginning of the text or in chapter 11, uh, when the Lord says that I will bring the host of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, and the whole assembly of them, you know, if I find it, when I find it, I was just reading it today or yesterday or something. Cause so favorably. Yeah. Yeah, that was in an earlier chapter, yeah, when he was talking about bringing that. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I, I was reading it earlier. I, I honestly don't know where that is supposed to be. But when I find it, I will actually take us back there. Um, but yeah. These are very, very interesting things that are being referenced in this text. I think that this is one of the most, most um, meticulously woven texts ever because, in fact, I think like the books of the first books in the Bible, everything is, was meticulously written. But then when we're looking at the first books or the first five books in there, you know, um, by Moses, it's filled with a lot of symbols, a lot of things are being concealed, you know, absolutely a lot of details like you actually need to pay very, very, very close attention, you know, while you're reading the text, just so that um, Absolutely, you're going to, so that, you know, you don't miss anything um, that is being spoken of. Now, when we're looking at the Passover, it is very important that we actually look at the events that precedes the Passover. So we're looking at the children of Israel that are actually in Egypt. This is following the death of Joseph, right? Um, you know, as things start to unfold, we now realize that the children of Israel, you know, have become slaves in Egypt. And we see this in chapter two or chapter one, um, you know, of Exodus. Okay, yeah, that's 51, verse 51, verse 51. So we're seeing that being mentioned in the book of Exodus. In fact, the text actually opens up, you know, we're saying in that time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending the entire generation, but their descendants, the Israelites had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that it became extremely powerful and filled the land. And we know that this has always been a promise, you know, of Adonai. And verse eight says, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. And verse 11 says, so the Egyptians 
made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the field. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave order to the Hebrew midwives, Sifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her leave. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to leave too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this? He demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to leave? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptians. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly so we cannot get there in time. And so God was good to the midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave these, um, he gave this order to all the people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Now it's, absolutely stunning how like this text opens up with slavery the book of exodus which is literally called the book of shemot which means the book of names right um it literally opens up with slavery so the first thing that we see or the first thing that we're introduced to is other than the sons of israel you know that were mentioned in the first few verses of the text were actually introduced into this slavery that the children of israel have gotten themselves into now what is quite interesting about egypt and what is quite interesting about this text is that just few verses away right, which is what we call Genesis, just a few chapters away, we're actually realizing or seeing how, first of all, Egypt at one point becomes this dual, you know, state. First of all, it's this place where slaves are sold to, right, so it, became, it becomes this hub for slavery, right, it becomes this hub for, you know, if you literally want to kill anybody's dream, literally, if you want to, because we see that with Joseph, if you want to kill anybody's dream, if you want, you know, an end to something, or if you want a place where people have to go through a, a, a form of process or a form that is not necessarily comfortable, right, um, we see people being sold into slavery where they can no longer serve themselves. They can, no, they can no longer serve any other thing. They cannot serve any other God, but the God of Egypt. Now, some chapters later, we see Egypt being painted as the place of salvation, right? So it is this place where every single person from different parts of the world come to, to you know, get food, literally to survive. So was seeing bread in Egypt, which is quite interesting. And then Egypt opens up again in Exodus as a hub that is literally trying to impose bitterness, um, impose, you know, um, slavery and every form of punishment and even death, you know, upon the people that were not, um, you know, being conformed in, in their ways or that seemed like an enemy. So Egypt became this place that was no longer a place of bread. It now became a place that, you know, was seen it in the first time or the, the first um, form 
in which it was introduced, right? We're seeing it here in a more explicable manner and even more explicable, we're now seeing it as more aggressive because the first time we see Egypt, right? Slavery just is being sold and all these things are happening. Abraham is in Egypt. Abraham comes out from Egypt and stuff like that. But now we're seeing that other than the slavery, there is no food for anybody that was Egypt's enemy. And now we're seeing that Egypt becomes this place that is not just about slavery, but then it pushes the boundaries and we're seeing death, you know, being introduced to the text. So the way this state is being introduced to us, the way it is being, um, you know, um, the way it is being introduced to us, yes, absolutely, thank you. The way it is being introduced to us is, is I mean, I don't think anybody should overlook that. I think that is very necessary because the thing about text, the thing about scriptures is that when it introduces a place, when it introduces a nation, introduces a country, a geographical location to you, it is very necessary that you look out for the characteristics of that location, right? So if we're actually drawing attention to what is happening in Egypt, we're seeing slavery, we're seeing death, we're seeing bitterness, we're seeing aggression, we're seeing again where people are forced to serve and labor to make a name for somebody else that is Pharaoh. I don't know if this is making sense. Interestingly, the first time we see that being introduced in the text or in scriptures where somebody is literally trying to make a name for himself was with Cain. When Cain actually, you know, um, go off, this is in chapter four of Genesis, when Cain walks off, you know, towards the east side of Eden, which is called Nod, and we see that Cain builds a city and he doesn't name that city after God. He doesn't name that city after maybe his father or his forefathers his, or his brother that he killed. He's naming the city after Enoch, his son. We're seeing a man that is trying to make a name for not just himself now, but for his generation. The next time we see somebody being, you know, um, introduced as one that is trying to make a name for himself is Nimrod. Nimrod is literally the father of Babylon. He is the father of um, Nineveh, right? He's the father of like so many cities that are portrayed as rebellious cities in scriptures. Now, what is quite interesting about the name Nimrod is that Nimrod literally means rebellion. And we move forward from where Nimrod is spoken of and we go to Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, we're introduced to this group of people that migrated from the east. And then they set up camp, you know, in this place where they want to build a tower that will reach the heavens. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to make a name for themselves. Interestingly, this name that they are trying to make for themselves is as a result of building a tower that is made with burnt bricks. So we follow that trail and we go to chapter 12 when the Lord reveals himself to Abraham and the Lord says to Abraham, follow me, leave your father's house and follow me and I will make your name great. Now we don't see the Lord saying, make your name great. He's saying to Abraham, I will make your name great. That is the absolute opposite of what we're being introduced in the text. We're either seeing men trying to make names for themselves, make names for posterity, or make names for a God, 
but now we're seeing God trying to make a man's name great or make a name for a man. And that is absolutely opposite of what we've been introduced to the text. And so we see God walking with um, Abraham and then we get to Genesis chapter one. And the next thing we see again, we see burnt bricks. We see make somebody's name great. And it's so important to actually notice that in that point, at that stage, right, we're being introduced to the absolute opposite of the God that is Adonai and the God that is the God of Egypt. The God of Egypt will demand you make his name great. The God that is Adonai will actually say, and it's absolutely incredible. Egypt, and why was God so adamant or so bent on getting the people of Israel out of Egypt? So at this point, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to ask if anybody has any thoughts, any questions or anything at all that you like to. Sorry, can you say that again? You said that the God of Egypt will demand you make a name, make his name great, but the God yes. of Adonai will do what? We'll ask that he make your name. He makes your own name great. Okay, thank you. Yes. So at this point, we're now asking questions. What really is Egypt? Why is this such a big deal? Why can't God just let these people settle here? After all, there was a time that he brought salvation and he brought life to people. After all, there was a time that there was bread in Egypt. So why can't God just let people be, right? And so, so we go back again to the name Egypt. We first see the characteristics. It's being said here in chapter one. It's a place of bitterness. It's a place of anguish. It's a place where you're trying to make somebody's name great. It's all these things happening, right? But now this is the flip side of Egypt, which we actually see at the beginning of the text or some chapters before this point. Now, the word Egypt is from the Hebrew word Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, M-I-T-Z-R-A-Y-I-M, Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim literally means the narrow place. Why is it the narrow place? I remember having a conversation with someone and she was saying, oh, that actually reminds me of the scripture that says, I think that was Teka. Narrow is the way that leads to God. I, I mean, yeah, that was quite incredible how she pissed it off, you know, and I just never forgot that. Um, but Mitzrayim literally means the narrow place. And why is it called the narrow place? It is called the narrow place first for geographical reasons, and then we'll proceed to the other parts, right? Egypt has one of the longest Niles in Africa, which is the river, one of the longest river in Africa, which is the River Nile. The River Nile literally is so narrow, it even runs underneath the pyramids, right? Very narrow, absolutely narrow. And when there is water, right, there is fish. When there is fish, there is a means of food or a mean source of living, right? If you can't be a fisherman, at least you can be the servant of a fisherman. And if you're the servant of a fisherman, that means that there is food for you or there's certainty or assurance of food. And another interesting thing about it is that, which is so fundamental, 
there is a river, there is water. And so if you're going through the entire text of Genesis um, and the introduction of Exodus and go through your journey with the Israelites through the wilderness, you see a lot of water, a lot of river, we're thirsty, we want water. If you know, Moses is either trying to get water from rock or you know, there is a spring that is coming out in the wilderness or there is, there is a well that is you know, being dug out you know, in the wilderness. We're seeing a lot of water being mentioned. In fact, from Genesis chapter two, Two were open up to the Garden of Eden. You know, after so much is happening, we're open up literally to water. We see the four, you know, sources of water running through um, Eden, and you know, we have all these things happening in in the text. Now, what is going on is beyond water. We're looking at water, but we're also looking at source of living. We're looking at source of life, right? We're looking at sustainability. We're looking at um, provision. We're looking at certainty. We're looking at, you know, a means of income, a means of livelihood. And so for Egypt to be this place where there is a river that is being mentioned, you know, it's not just saying, oh, there is a fancy river for tourists. Water was a very, very necessary commodity right in biblical times unlike now when we actually think of water we can buy bottled water we can have taps in our homes we can have all these things going on but then in scripture when water was mentioned we must remember that it was actually being mentioned from a place of lack so it wasn't necessarily a you know it wasn't necessarily something that was was common it was a rare commodity so when you see people talking about water and talking about Israel, they're talking about so many things that is not just about the river or about, sorry, about Egypt. They're talking about so many things that is not just about the location, but they're actually talking about a place where you have a form of certainty. You have water. You don't have to think about breaking waters from rock. You don't have to think about being thirsty. You don't have to think about any of these things. And in fact, when you have water, you also have... Um, you know, abundance of harvest because you know that the crops will one way or the other be watered, you know, there will be necessarily like no lack, you know. Um, so there were so many things that were going on. And so as a result of this, people would willingly sell themselves into slavery in Egypt just so that they could have certainty. Right. But the other side or the flip side of this reality is that as long as you're in Egypt, you have one God and that is Pharaoh. So it's like, you know how they say this thing in Hollywood that you sold, sold, someone sold their soul to the devil, literally. It's like, you're literally saying, Pharaoh, take my life, take it all. Just give me water, give me food, give me certainty, give me a job. And so we now slow down to actually see the reality of what is going on in Egypt, what Egypt literally is projecting when we talk about Egypt, what is really happening here? What is really happening in the text? Is it just a place? Is it just a nation? Or is it something more than what we just did not see? So at this point, I'm going to pause and ask if anybody has any thoughts, any questions or comments. Please. Give me a second. Anyone? I guess what just stood out to me is um, 
you know, just that statement that you made right now saying that the only God in, in Egypt is Pharaoh, because like I said, I've been studying Exodus um, for the first time in a long time. And I've noticed that a lot of, I mean, even just the conversation between Moses and Pharaoh, you know, Moses kept on demanding that they leave to be able to worship God. Like they had to leave Egypt to be able to worship God. And um, yeah, I guess like that just sort of, um, I find that interesting now in light of the statement that you just made now. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so sorry. Um, the light just went off here. Um, techno. I don't know who techno is. Um, but can you? Um, it's, your hand. It's, Please, can you just let me know what your name is? Talk is a bit poor. Sorry. It's cheesy, actually. It's cheesy. Okay. That I would correct it. I'm putting my name. Okay. Chuzi, two ago. Okay. Oh, hi. So, when you said that, uh, basically in Egypt, since so since um, there was so much um, like you said, once the children of Israel, once you were in Egypt, you you only you only had one God, which was Pharaoh. So that means that means that even. God couldn't allow the children of Israel stay in Egypt and worship him because then they would share his worship with Pharaoh. So he had to get them out of Egypt in order for him for, for them to worship him truly like he deserved. Yes, uh, mine is, I don't know, but like, I feel like, could it be that? I feel like it was just the time where, you know, when God um, prophesied to, was it Abraham or Isaac, when he told him that uh, his descendants would, you know, be slaves in another country for 400 and something years. I don't know if I'm getting like the number of the years right. I just feel like the time was right. And like the prophecy was about to be, uh, fulfilled. I, I don't know. That's what just came to my mm-hmm. mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. But then there is now that question of, you know, um, why Egypt, right? And what what was Egypt about? Because it could have been any other place. But then why Egypt, you know, and what was it really about? What was really happening there? Because yes, there's the place of prophecy, but then there's also that place of the of, of understanding how God's mind, how God's mind works, right? So um, you don't we, we're not just seeing it as oh a geographical location that God just randomly chose and it was like okay, this is what this is going to be. But then He's looking at it and it's like oh you know what, there is actually there is a reason 
this is quite significant. It's quite symbolic in the grand scheme of things. And you know, here is here is literally how I'm thinking. This is how I'm seeing it, and this is why. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. I get you. Yes, thank yeah. you. Okay. So, anybody else? Oh, sorry. I didn't even know. I was asking a question. I was like, so can we go on? It's so, I was going to say it's so weird when I'm talking to myself. Is anybody there? <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes, so, can go on. Okay. Okay. So now we're looking at can you. Go on. Thank you. We're looking at the place of, you know, um, of, of Egypt. We're looking at, um, you know, we're looking at the place of Egypt. We're looking at um, what this signifies. What does this symbolize? You know, all the activities that are happening in Egypt, all the things that are, you know, taking place there, um, which is also quite interesting because when we even think about Egypt, there's often this tendency to, um, which is something that we see in the church a lot. You know, there is this approach to um, that we take with God, and is that 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 posture of victimization, you know, or victim victim mentality. So we come to God and we're like, "Look at me! I am so frustrated. I am this. I am that. I am this. you know." So many things might go on, or so many things might be said to God, and you know, there's always this statue or this posture of hopelessness that we tend to take when we actually come before God. So we're thinking, ah, I'm so miserable. I'm so this, I'm so that, I'm so this, I'm so, you know, the world is against me. Everything is not working out. You know, look at me, God, I'm such a good person in a wicked world. Everybody around me is wicked, you know? And it's, it's I mean, maybe some of us can actually attest to this. Um, if we actually don't approach God this way, we probably know at least somebody in our church or someone in our family that just somehow just blackmail God emotionally, you know, just to get things from him. But this is how God thinks, right? When God thinks of Egypt, yes, Egypt is a place of oppression. Yes, Egypt is a place of, you know, slavery. Yes, Egypt is a place of even possible death. But then when God thinks of Egypt, God also sees a potential for the promised land. And this is what it means, or this is what I mean. So when God actually takes or took his people through Egypt, right? There was first of all this ideology or this place or this mindset that they had. And it was what we call in our time, in the Western contemporary time, we call um, protected. Some people will say, oh, you know, I was well, I was protected or I was shielded, you know? And so oftentimes when you listen to a shielded person talk, or even when they look at the things that are around them or people's lives around, you know, people's lives around them, they just can't fathom like people dealing with certain things, right? 
So I'll give an example. There was a time when I just couldn't process anybody in this world smoking. In fact, if you're smoking close to me, brah, I'm going to shift from you, like, you know, as far as the East is from the West, I will shift. I would not even want to have anything to do with you because I just had this idea that, you know, when people smoke, they are terrible people. They are, you know, they are homeless, they are robbers because that's how Nigerian movies portrayed it to us. Like, you know, if you, if you, if you're smoking, the bad boy is always holding a cigarette, right? And God, you never knows that. I do not know. <laughs> I never saw myself holding a stick in my life until I saw myself holding a stick in this life, in this lifetime. And every ideology that I have just went skipping out of the, it just literally flew out of the window, right? There were so many things that I just could not bring myself to believe. I just couldn't think that people that did things that they did not want to do were human beings. I just thought that these people were not, they were destined to go to hellfire. Cause I actually, <laughs> I actually had that mindset that, okay, there are some of us that will go to hell. Like, you know, in fact, no matter what you preach, no matter what you do, some people have just been molded and created, you know, for, for hellfire, you know, according to the theology that I had. So, there were certain things I started to find myself doing. I started to find myself experiencing things that decisions that I willingly got myself into. And I started to see things differently. You know, even when the Lord brought me out from Egypt or from what I considered my past and the things that I was doing, there was, and there is this appreciation and awe and wonder that I have for this um, being that is righteous and holy and just so absolutely precious that I never had before until I was literally sent into that space where I had gotten myself, you know, I'd gotten myself into so many troubles, so many problems. My own self is not like somebody pushed me in. I walked into that place by myself. It looked promising until it was no longer promising. And so what I'm trying to say is oftentimes the Lord will let us go through certain things or there are some experiences that we will have that will be like, oh my God, you know, I wish I did not experience this or I wish I didn't have to go through these things. But I tell you, when we come out from that place, when we come out from that place of assurance, that place of certainty, that place where it feels like everything is working out, when it feels like I'm serving any other God but God, when I come out from that place and I actually fix my eyes on God, there is a, there is, there is a gratitude that my shelter would never have given to me. There's a gratitude. There is a new light that I see that God, there is a craving, a hunger, a thirst that I start to have, or that I now have, you know, for God that I never had by just being born into a Christian home. And maybe some of us can attest to this. Maybe some of us are experiencing this now. Maybe some of us are actually coming into that season or into that space, right? Um, and that's literally what we see in the Israelites' experience in Egypt. Now they're in this place where they are being made as slaves to make a name for someone. 
It was no longer about being treated as those that the Lord has called out, those that the Lord has called to himself, those that are the descendants of Abraham. Oh, Joseph was here. Joseph gave food by his wisdom. Look at all the things that happened. The text clearly says that at this time, Joseph died. And then a king came that didn't even care, that didn't even know anything, you know. His own was me, myself, and I. And then they found themselves in this situation, in this place, in this nation, or in this location where things were just not working out as they expected. But incredibly, even in the difficulty, there was a certainty of food. There was a certainty of a job. There was a certainty that even if they were flogged day and night, at least they would have bread to eat. And so we start to see the DNA of Egypt that even when we look at it as a painful place, absolutely unbearable, the Lord can actually take Egypt. He can literally utilize Egypt as a place for molding, where we can actually say like Joseph, what was supposed to be for evil. Now in this evil, the good has been extracted. In this darkness, the light has been extracted. And now I'm not leaving this place with the gloom or I'm not leaving this place with the bitterness. I'm not leaving this place with the darkness. I'm not leaving this place, you know, with the evil. But now see how I have mature or see how I now know the things that I could never have known if I didn't go through this process. And so we start to see that with the Israelites, there were things that they didn't know there were experiences, there, was, there were dimensions of God that they heard of, but they had not seen. And so instead of the Lord sitting down sulking and saying, oh, my dear children, look at you, my dear children. I feel so bad, my dear children. You know, it now became a subject matter of how can we see light here? How can I help you see light here? How can I help you find good? or talk here. If we retrace our steps to the experience of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery. But what is interesting is that Joseph willingly gave himself up because Joseph, when he was sent by his father to go see his brothers, Joseph knew that his brothers didn't love him, right? Joseph knew that he was hated by his brothers. Joseph never, there was no form of, you know, endearment between Joseph and his brothers. So Obviously, Joseph, when he was asked by his father to go to see the shalom of his brother, the peace of his brother, he knew. He knew that this was no good report. But then in obeying his father, Joseph had become a form of sacrifice. And so Joseph goes to see his brother and then his brothers take him and they sell him off, which is quite interesting. His brothers sell him off to the descendants of Ishmael that were actually dealing in slave trade, right? And so that's like his uncle's, uncle's descendants, you know, selling him to Egypt. And now this is what is interesting about this, the prisons in Egypt. It's not the prisons that we know it to be now. The prisons in Egypt were actually buried in the ground. They were underground. So when you actually think of Egypt and prison, the first thing that will probably help to come to mind is underground. 
right? So we can say to a very large extent, while Joseph was in prison, Joseph was buried. You know, Joseph was buried in Egypt. And so when Joseph came out and was sent or presented to the palace, we were not seeing a man that went into Egypt as he was when he was a boy. We were seeing someone that had died a death in the underground cells in Egypt and had resurrected a man of wisdom. He was not the child that he was when he went into Israel, into Egypt. And that's why you see that when his brothers came to him, Joseph wasn't, you know, eager to flaunt. Oh, look at me now. I'm the prime minister. I remember when I told you about the dream. Oh, yes. Oh, la la. I'm here now. Wow. It's happening. You can see me now. Joseph handles the situation with so much wisdom, so much wisdom that he said, what you meant for evil. God made it for good. It wasn't just about the food being provided. Joseph was seeing a holistic picture where he wasn't going to allow himself to become a victim of Egypt, but a victor from Egypt. And so while we might say, oh God, why did you let these people go through this? It's important that we actually see that God's goal is ultimate objective is that we will be purified and we will be like him. And if it will require going through Egypt to experience the sanctification and the purification, then so be it. And sometimes we need to experience the consequences of our foolishness to appreciate the value of wisdom. And so, you know, it's one thing for God to say, oh, my child, my child, let me shield you. But then shielding will only make you what it is. You will be shielded and absolutely blind to the reality and even the value of what God has given to us for free. So it is, this, it is with this mindset that we actually approach what is happening in chapter 12, right? Um, all these things are going on. All these experiences are taking place in Egypt. And then the Lord calls... Moses and Lord says, oh, I'm sending you to Egypt and you're going to bring these people out from Egypt. Now, what is quite interesting in what the Lord is saying over and over and over again to Moses is bring the people of Israel out of Egypt that they might serve me. Bring them out from Egypt that they might serve me. And every time Moses will go before, um, you know, um, Moses will go before Pharaoh. He will say, Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go that they might serve me. Let my people go that they might serve me every single time. Let my people go that they might serve me. Let my people go that they might serve me. And we're seeing all these things happening. We're seeing the plagues going on, but the Lord keeps using that word. Let my people go that they might serve me. And so this is the point that we also take a pause to ask, what exactly was going on and why did God have to ask that the people will be let go that they might serve him? Does anybody want to answer that? I just want to know that I'm not talking to myself. So does anybody want to attempt answering that?
Sorry, I missed the question. Sorry. Like you're talking to yourself. What do you say? I said I didn't want you to feel like you're talking to yourself, but I'm not sure I can answer. Okay. Okay, so the Lord kept telling Moses every time he would go before Pharaoh, he would say, Pharaoh, the Lord says, let my people go that they might serve me. And the question is, why exactly was he saying that, you know, why was he using that word serve? Yes, choosy. Um, is it, can I answer? Yes. yes. Um, is, it, is it possible that God, um, God knew that maybe, um, oh, okay. We lock to leave the comfort no no comfort that's the wrong word oh my god the network is really what bad. the familiarity they had in Egypt and would be come out and follow him to where the dreams even know. Could that be for us? Um, I I don't know. Like the network is so bad, I couldn't hear anything you're saying. I'm so sorry. Can I repeat myself? Choose, is it possible to send a message? Please, so that you don't have to make music. Yeah, please, is it possible to... Okay, can I repeat myself now? The network is breaking and I don't want to lose anything you're saying. Okay, Shuzi, please, if you don't mind typing it in the set comments, please. Okay, so um, so we have Mercedes and Egono. So please, can you go on? Um, so for me, I I think that 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 just um the answer to answer your question, um, what you said earlier about how in Egypt everything that is done is in service to Pharaoh. All mm. the systems, like all the operations, the daily, like, you know, even just being able to get water, like everything is done in service to Pharaoh and mm. his agenda to make Pharaoh free. So I think it's already like an ecosystem that's not conducive for anybody to do anything other than serve Pharaoh. So I would say that um, sort of God seeing that, cause you know, he sees the, the um, sort of bird's eye view, like he sees everything. Um, 
was telling them or trying to, 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 I guess, highlight the distinction because it's not possible for you to be in that place, that old place and exalt him in it. You need to come out of that place, be able to um, enter on God in your life, I guess. That's how I would say. Yeah, amazing, absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, somebody else. Thank you so much, Mercedes. I'm gonna. Okay. Hi, everybody. So basically, a message is just said like kind of what I was going to say, but I'm just going to drop this as well. Um, in the chapter one of um, Exodus, something actually, um, I noticed something that was there. I noticed that um, from the text initially, you know, it didn't look like the Israelites were slaves, right? And then this, this Pharaoh who did not know Joseph came and said, you know what, these guys are getting, um, they're getting many, they're multiplying, let us now enslave them. Let's make slave drivers over them. And so, I mean, they were not, they were not actually slaves in the first instance. They were more like people who were now living and habitating in Egypt. Suddenly, this Pharaoh guy begins to make them slaves. And so what I was going to say was that um, God was like, they need to leave so that they can serve me. Because like she said, everything became like when once the Pharaoh decided to make them slaves, which they were not from looking at the text and you know, trying to read, understand the um, 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 Exodus chapter one. Um, what came to my mind is basically everything now became designed to ensure that they, their entire beings is basically in service. And so there was no way they could serve God in that environment. There was always going to be that conflict because everything just designed, like Mercedes said, you know, to serve Pharaoh. Yeah. So they had to leave that space to be able to give God wholesome service. Yeah. Sorry, please, can you say that again? Please, can you take that again? Okay, okay. So what I said, let me, let me start from the beginning. What I said was that, um, what I was going to say is kind of what Mercedes said. However, um, where I was coming from was the fact that I noticed something in um, Exodus chapter one. Um, if you read the text, Exodus chapter one, you see that the, the children of Israel, you know, they went into Egypt of their own volition Obviously, mm -hmm. there was no food, and Joseph was prime minister, so he went into Egypt, and you know all of that, all the advantages of you know being knowing the prime minister family, all of that. So they were not exactly slaves from chapter one, like they were not from verse one, they were not exactly slaves. But then a pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, and he decided that oh, these guys are getting many, they are now fruitful, they are multiplying, blah blah blah. Let's now turn them to slaves. Right, so they were not slaves before, and then the, this pharaoh now made them slaves. And so, in making them slaves, you know, he now designed everything to keep them to everything to ensure that whatever they do is slavery and then um, doing everything in service to pharaoh. And so, there was no way they were going to be able to give God wholesome worship and service in that environment. 
Is it? Are you guys hearing me? I can hear you. I'm so sorry. There's like this freak, like literally scary insects. That okay. I'm sorry. Okay, so there was no way they were going to be able to give God some service to the environment that was designed to keep them enslaved. Like everything was designed because chapter one, the guy said, "Let's now make them slaves." Now they are getting men. Let them now become our slaves because we're not slaves in the first instance when they were fruitful and we we're multiplying. Yeah, so it's what Mercedes said. The only difference is that I just um, brought up the chapter one where the slavery began, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, Mercedes said, um, being overly comfortable in that land wasn't God's design. Absolutely, they had become very comfortable in a place of comfort. Um, Tuesday said, uh, maybe God knew that the children of Israel may be unwilling to leave the familiarity of Egypt. I think that God meant was that the Israelites were serving Pharaoh. So God is saying, let my people go so they might serve me. Absolutely. And so they had to be sent out. The place was to make, absolutely. Have we ever been in this kind of situation where you know that you're not supposed to be there, but you would rather be there than be in the place that God wants you to be because that place or that day that you're not supposed to be just feels more certain than where God is asking you to go to, right? So <laughs> for some of us, it might just be like, all of a sudden your workplace just becomes, will be like Egypt. <laughs> so the place that used to be very comfortable where your boss used to be your boss's favorite and all of a sudden, you know, it's just like, what am I doing here? My boss hates me. Like my colleagues are frustrating me. Everybody's pissing me off. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm doing. You slowly come from that place of uncertainty or that place of certainty. And then you go into this place of uncertainty in a place of, of certainty. And that's like very, very dicey, right? So, um, so this issue or this subject matter of Egypt, it wasn't just about the Israelites, it was literally about what God was doing, um, you know, in their lives. And it was also about us, you know, um, not just seeing the Israelites, but we're also asking the Lord, how and why, and you know, in what ways does this thing actually play out in my life? You know, if I'm looking at the DNA of Egypt, that means that if I take the DNA of Egypt and I apply it in any other place, right? Um, it can still be Egypt because it's not just about the country Egypt, it's about the DNA, the nature of Egypt and how like, you know, it seems like this place of uncertainty, this place of comfort, this place of you know beauty and splendor and prestige and all of a sudden it becomes a place of shame you know it becomes a place of uncertainty it becomes a place of mourning um but most importantly when the lord is actually saying um you know when i'm actually saying oh lord save me from egypt it is very important that i'm asking the lord what would you have me take out you know from this place so um, back to the question when the Lord said, you know, let my people go that they might serve me. It's actually interest us to realize that that place or that word that was actually used, um, you know, let my people go that it might serve me. We see that in chapter, chapter eight. We see that in chapter nine. Um, when, when the Lord, went, when Moses went to Pharaoh in chapter nine, um, verse 13. The Lord said, Moses, get up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews, of the Hebrews say, let my people go, 
so that they can serve me. If you're using all the translations, some translations will say so that they might worship me, you know, or some translations will say so that they might serve me. Um, and so what is interesting is that embedded in that word worship or serve, um, we have the Hebrew word evet. And evet literally is a word or in Hebrew that means worship, work, there, somebody, someone is watching football. I hope not. I don't know how you're working both of them. Okay. I don't know. In I don't know you. I don't know how you're working both of them. But um, okay. So the word eved is spelled e v e d. E v e d is from the word. So we have worship work. Service servant and slave. Service servant or slave. Service servant or slave. Did you get that? So the word that they might serve me, right, is gotten from the Hebrew word eved. And we can say eved means worship. Naya, let's, let's take it one step at a time, please. So um, we can say it means worship. There is work, worship, work, serve, servant. Did we get that? Serve, servant, service, or slave. Does anybody need me to take that again? Yeah, can you spell, can you spell the word? Okay, I was right. Okay. okay thank you. Mm -hmm. So we have worship, work, serve, servant, service, or slave. Did we get that? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Please. Okay. So now it will actually interest us to know that this same word, I mean, this same word that was used in this text in the book of Exodus, the first time this is mentioned, and I know, like, for those of us that have attended the foundational sessions before, I must have mentioned, and we spoke about, not even I must, I remember actually that we spoke about something called the law of first mention in Bible study. So, when you're doing your Bible study, it's very important to take note of certain words. And it's also very important to not just take note of those words, but actually look for the very first place those words were utilized or that word was utilized. Um, so there are two ways to look at it. You have the law of first mention. So for example, we're going to see the law of first mention around eved, not necessarily work or worship, but eved, which is the root word from which this word was gotten. Now, there is something else called metalipsis. Metalipsis is not just about the words. Metalipsis goes if a, a little bit further, right? So I am not looking at a verb. I'm looking at the context. I'm not looking at the first place a verb was mentioned. I am going further to actually look at the context, right? Look at the utilization of that text in not just the first place it was mentioned, but in every other place it was mentioned. Does that make sense? So the law of first mention says when you find a word, don't just look at worship or work or servants or any of these things. Look at the root word. 
and then look for the first place that root word was utilized. It will give you a broader understanding of the utilization of that word in the text that you are looking at. Should I repeat it again? Okay, I'm guessing yes. that we got that. Yes. Yes. Okay, so in when we're looking, there are two words. The first is, or there are two principles for to, get, to guide your studies. There is the law of first mention. The law of first mention says that look when you're when you're doing your studies, right? Don't just look at a word. Don't just say, oh, it says work here. And then there it said service. Okay, it's not related. The law of first mention demands or appeals to me. Let me not say demand because some people, some people like human rights. So the law of first mention appeals that I should slow down to take notes of the first place that word was utilized, right? And let me just go back just in case so I don't confuse you. If you're using Bible Hub, you will see that every word in Bible, or most of the words in Bible is attributed to a root word, right? So this, this right, and I'll not nod my head. It just sounds so weird, but I'll just nod my head because my mind, I'm, 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 I have to play yes in my head. So it's in Bible Hub, every word or every sentence that you, you, you see there, right, is attributed to a root word. That root word is either Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, when you're looking at the root word, you will notice something, especially when you're looking at Hebrew word. Hebrew word, one Hebrew word has an average, an average of five meanings. There are five, at least five English words attached to one Hebrew word. It's that, it's such a condensed language, right? It is not like English. Hebrew is very condensed. <coughs> it's like, <coughs> Sorry, it's like that Ribena that is very condensed that you have to use water. That's literally what Hebrew language is like. It's very condensed, very, very, sorry, very, very concentrated. So one word can mean at least, at least, let's maybe probably not say five, at least three words. You will see at least three words from, <laughs> you see at least three words from one Hebrew language. So what is going to help us very much, and that's what literally the law of first mention states. The law of first mention states that every word that is utilized, right, in scripture, hmm, that word has a root word. For you to understand how and the context or the mind frame of the author in utilizing that word, it is important that you refer to the first time that word was used. So for example, one of the most common words that we actually see in scripture that we don't really pay mind to is the word tov, or tov. First time we see it, in fact, splattered around Genesis 1, the Lord created and he brought, he brought forth fruit according to its kind. And the Lord saw that, the Lord saw that, right? And the Lord said, it is good. And every time you see that the Lord said something was good, was when it produced after its own kind. You just go through Genesis one, you literally see that there. Every time something produced after its kind, 
the Lord will see, the Lord will say it is good. So now, if I'm going through scriptures and I'm saying, oh, good is anything that makes me feel good, I'm lying to myself and I'm trying to create a vocabulary that is outside the text of which I'm supposed to be making reference to. So I cannot be arguing, I'm saying anything that makes me feel good is good. And then say, oh, the Bible says so. The Bible doesn't say so. You're accusing the Bible wrongly because you're not actually um, going by the record. You're not actually going by its own definition of what good is or you know the lord's mind when he was using that word good when the lord says i see good you know it has to be according to his mind frame right so now the same thing that we're seeing here we see work or we see worship that they might worship me or they might serve me now the law of first mentions appeals let me use appeal and smile for our human rights people the law of first mention appeals right that you should slow down. Don't just say, oh, I know what service means. Oh, I know what worship means. You know, there was no heal song or better or anything. So I don't know what worship means and I don't know what God was thinking. Obviously God did not say they should leave Egypt to just come and be singing to him, right? It had to be something more substantial, you know, um, that I, I need to slow down and, and observe and ask. So what the first law of first mention says, begs you to do right is auntie please slow down please can you go back to the first place this was mentioned and look at the context so that you understand the context in which that word was utilized in this particular passage that's law first mention the other one metallipsis it states that if i am looking at a text in scripture for example the book of Revelation. If I look at book of Revelation, book of Revelation doesn't really tell me so much about Jezebel. It just tells me, I hate you because you have allowed that woman, Jezebel, to, you know, to influence the prophets. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why this guy, I don't know why he's saying that he doesn't like Jezebel. And I can't just say, oh, this guy, he's such a mean, he's so mean, you know, I don't, I don't know why. So Metalipsy says, please can you slow down can we go back to jezebel can we read the story of jezebel can we look at the context of jezebel can we see the other places jezebel was mentioned and so in that you now start to see the dna of jezebel the essence of jezebel and why jezebel was mentioned in the book of revelation so one focuses on the word the other focuses on the context or the narrative of that particular phrase does that make sense? Exactly, backstory. That's metalipsis. Thank you so much. Yeah, backstory. And then the other one focuses on the word. One zooms into the word, the other zooms into the backstory. Is that clear? It's clever. Can you stop this metalipsis thing, please? Thank you. Okay. Hey, not go to school. Did it? Wow. Did it, did it, <laughs> I just asked a question, though. Okay. Metalipsis. I'm just not engaging. I'm trying to engage. Thank you. I'm giving you emojis. Wow. Okay. So it's M E T A L E P S I S. Yeah. Thank you for engaging. I'm engaged. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Metalipsis. Yes. Thank you. So. 
the first time now we're looking at the word why why did god say that they might worship me why didn't god say that they can live and be with me forever right he said that they might worship me some say that they might serve me but then in the original text right we're seeing the word that is gotten from the root word evade and so now we're going to see the application of the law of first mention where was this first mentioned and in what context was he utilized? This will take us to Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. Sorry, Genesis 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7, sorry. What am I saying? Sorry, Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15. So we see here, it says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Now we might see tend here. Does anybody have any translation that says work or serve? NIV. Yeah, yes, 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 to work, yes. So now, do you, does this paint a picture about worship or service? Because it's the same word that is used here, a verb. He placed man in the garden. So we can say he placed man in the garden to serve. He placed man in the garden to worship. He placed man in the garden to work. So does this now change your perspective? Because this is the first place this is mentioned. The first place it is mentioned, the first place worship, work, serve, or service is mentioned, is man being in the place God has placed him in and doing the work that God has asked him to do, right? So what the Lord is saying now when we go back to Exodus is they're not meant to be here. Thank you, Helen. They're not meant to be here. I haven't, they're not meant to be here, right? And if they are, if, as long as they are, um, they are in this place, they will not be able to um, bear or bring forth good fruit. I don't know if this is making sense and well now it's probably it's painting a picture that it was more about, it was more than just leaving Egypt. Because now every time Moses will come to him and to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they might serve me, he's looking at service in accordance with Genesis 2 verse 15 not meant to be here, not doing what I asked them to do, wasting away. And, I, and I, I'm actually even hoping that it changes, you know, it changes our perspective exactly here. That's the first, after I wasn't wrong. So that cultivate as well, you know, is a vet. So, I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping that this is probably changing our mindset or our mind frames of what worship or what service really is. 
you know, it is accordance to that in Genesis 2, verse 5, Genesis 2, verse 15. Being placed where God has placed you in to do what the Lord has asked you to do. And so that possibly changes the narrative. So every time Moses will go there, Moses will say, you know, the Lord, let these people go that it might serve me, that it might be where I want them to be doing what I want them to do, right? Because they are actually wasting away in this place. I haven't placed them here at this time, right? So we're looking at the time, we're looking at the what, we're looking at the where, we're looking at the when. So we're looking at when, what, where, how, and that's to even show you how detailed. And so we see that detail even when the Lord is proposing to them how they should eat, what they should do, how they should kill. And in that, right, he starts to teach them how to serve because it's like, oh, I want you to do this at this time, in this way, in this manner. And because I'm not just telling you to do something, I am introducing you to what service is, to the concept of Eved, according to Genesis 2, verse 5. And they couldn't do that there as long as Pharaoh was their God. You can't, as a priest, you can't service two altars at the same time. You're either going to leave one for the other, right? So that's, you know, the framework around all these things that are happening. And so when we even approach the Passover, things just start to become you know, Clara, and we start to see the why and the what, and you know, just different concepts that we probably didn't really pay mind to at first. So I'm going to take a break and again ask: Does anybody have any question, any thoughts, any comments? Anybody? Any question, thoughts, or comments? <laughs> this is so awkward. When I'm recording, that's when I actually feel it because I see a very long gap, just long dash, just going to just silence. But anyways, let me go on. Can I go on? Can we go on? Yes. Yes, we can. Yeah, you can yes, we can. Thank you for saving me. Okay, so this is the framework and the reason I'm, I'm going through this is so that we understand the framework and we understand the process because when we look at the seven feast it's also very important to notice seven uh absolutely important to notice seven in the compilation of the feast and it's also important to notice that every feast was actually declared a shabbat that is a rest right so it starts on the shabbat starts on the saturday um, so it starts on the seventh day. So it's also important to take note of that as well. So when the Lord, <laughs> this is so crazy. So when the Lord is actually telling them, calling them out, right, from a foreign, strange God, and he's asking them to come to himself to serve them and be where he wants them to be, doing what he wants them to do at the time that he wants them to do it. He's introducing them to what service is, but he's also introducing them to what it means to be priests, what it means to steward, you know, his presence, what it means to actually separate from serving strange God to serving the one true God, what it actually means to not just see 
him, but understand who he is, what he is like, so that you can understand who you are. Because trust me, the Lord was not just calling them out from Egypt for his sake. He was also calling them out from Egypt for their sake because they were wasting away. Right? So he was calling them out for their sake. There was so much that he wanted to do in and through them. And it was not just again about going to the promised land. Because when you go to the promised land, you can be jobless in the promised land, right? You can be useless in the promised land. You can be a nuisance in the promised land. You can be rubbish in the promised land. So it wasn't just about taking them to a promised land or a geographical location. There was a work that he wanted to do in and through them, right? And so in their coming out, it wasn't just about, oh, we're marching on to go and serve this amazing God. It was also a process where they were coming towards themselves. They were going to see themselves for who they really were, what they were capable of doing, you know, um, by his power and by his grace. So literally, these people are strong, right? This, I don't know if anybody has ever experienced um, what they call it again, if anyone has ever been verbally abused. I worked with somebody that verbally abused me for three years or more. When I came out, I, I believed that I was nothing. <laughs> I, I believe me, I believe that I was nothing. People had to be doing pep talk for me. I'll sit down there, you know when they do pep talk and you'll say, hmm, that's true, that's true. They're telling me about myself. I'll say, yeah, that's true, that's true. But when you leave me, hey, back to square one. I'm, I'm going back to where, where they picked me out from the gutter, according to my former boss. He said, I picked you up from the gutter. So I just like to lay my bed in the gutter. But there is something about going through a particular process that breaks you and blinds you from seeing yourself or seeing anything that you could be. So it wasn't God, it wasn't again God being a narcissist for so many people that thought that, you know, I've had so many people ask that question. It wasn't about God being a narcissist. It was about God bringing them to himself and revealing themselves to themselves so they could see who they really were. That on one hand, they were not exactly different from the Egyptians that were their slave masters, right? But they could not, they could be, they could become better than where they were or who they were. And so maybe at this point, we're starting to see that the Passover wasn't just about the Israelites. The Passover is our story. The Passover is you and I. The Passover is literally God calling us out from one thing and taking us into something else that is greater and way bigger than where we're coming from. The Passover is not just about the Israelites in the book of Exodus. The Passover is a story of Bamidili, it's a story of Genesis. It's a story of, you know, it's a story of Mercedes, it's a story of Jojo, it's a story of every single person that is here. So it is with this framework that we're going to explore what this is. So in chapter 12, it says the Israelite was still in the land of Egypt. So it's important again that that is stated. This is happening. The children of Israel are still in Egypt. A very, very fundamental detail to take note of is that prior to this experience, you know, there was the thing about, you know, um, the death of the firstborn that the Lord has said. The Lord told, um, you know, Moses that there's going to be this thing, this thing is going to happen. I'm going to strike down, you know, I'm going to strike down, um, I'm going to strike down you know, the firstborn sons, and this is actually very important that we take note of that. There's going to be darkness, 
there's going to be the death of the firstborn sons and all these things are happening. So this is literally how this text is introduced to us. So now the Lord comes to Moses and he says, this is going to be the first month for you. And what that looks like is when I bring you out from Egypt, you're starting a new cycle. Now, that cycle is not as you've always known. You're starting a new cycle. And you're not starting a new cycle as a slave. Even though you are a slave, right, you are going to be enslaved to another master. So you're going to be owing your service to something else, to somebody else, not Pharaoh. So it's the beginning of a new cycle, and that's why we have the month Nisan. So some translations will say this will be the first day, or this will be the first month, or the first month of the year, which is the month Nisan, according to the calendars, Nisan. Now, this is going to be the first month. This is um, what you're going to ask them to do. The Lord, he says to Moses, you're going to ask every household to get a lamb a new one, a, a new, you know, a baby fresh, fresh blood, fresh blooded lamb, right? Now that's very symbolic and we need to take note of that. Tell every family to take what is enough for them. And if it is too much for them, you share it with another family. That's actually also very, very significant because we tend to see that example when manna is given in the wilderness of the Lord says, take enough for you for the day. Don't go and do too much. Just take the one that is okay for you, right? Um, so he says to him, take a newborn lamb on the first month, which is Nisan, because I'm about to take you out from Egypt, or I'm about to take you from the place of your comfort, from the place of a foreign God, or from a place where you are not supposed to be, to the place where you're truly to serve, where you're supposed to truly serve, as I've designed you to serve. Now, when we look at that, we oftentimes, you know, just jump or dive right into the fact that the lamb symbolized Jesus Christ, you know, um, what else? The, you know, it was very significant, the first day of the stuff and all of these things going on. And yes, very true. We see that play now. But then that sacrificial lamb, right? Um, you know, we see that playing out in Yeshua Mashiach in the book, in the New Testament, you know, in, in, in the revelations of that. We see a lot of side-by-side -side things happening. So, for example, somebody mentioned that, you know, when the Lord was talking to them, he says, don't break the bone of the lamb. We see that playing out in the life of Jesus when his bone wasn't broken. And when the Lord says, oh, when you're going to eat this, you have to make sure you're fully strapped, you're fully ready to depart from this place. That, again, you see that playing out, you know, um, in at the, the 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 Lord's um, the the Lord's feast um, in the New Testament at the table of um, you know um, communion um, when Jesus sits down with his disciples to break bread and have wine. But we see a lot of things going on. But then at the same time, we don't see a lot of things going on um, in this text um, that we start to see through the life of Jesus through the life of the apostles and again, playing out in our lives as well. So first thing, there is a month of Nisan when the Lord says, oh, this will be the beginning of a new cycle where you'll be out of Egypt. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. As we're reading this, we're also going to be seeing how this plays side by side in text. Now, when we go to the book of Luke, we probably know this story when Jesus Christ approaches Jerusalem, right? Um, and when he enters Jerusalem, we often call it um, the Palm Front, the Palm Sunday. 
I don't know if anybody remembers, where you see them with the palms, right? And then everybody's saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, Hosanna in the highest. And, you know, everybody's talking about that. Um, so what is literally happening is that this event takes place exactly on the day when they're supposed to choose the lamb or the sacrificial lamb. So this is happening side by side with when they choose the sacrificial lamb because Jesus enters Jerusalem on the day, and remember, it's also important to notice that he entered Jerusalem on the day when there is trade going on. The reason the trade was taking place in the city was because it was during Passover. And during Passover, you know, you had the priest bringing in, you had like, you know, traders in the temple um, bringing in like, um, you know, animals and all forms of, you know, like the lamb, the, the, the firstborn lamb, the, the one that was, you know, in less than a year old or about a year old, you had them in the temple, you know, um, so they had a lot of traders that were, you know, trading in the temple. But what was quite interesting was that it wasn't not just the traders that were trading, the priests or the people that were supposed to be the righteous one or the leaders or the religious leaders are taking over that place and they had become the ones that were selling at exorbitant prices, right? So they were literally cheating people around the Passover. Um, they were stealing from people, stealing their monies because everybody wanted to have a lamb for their household. And so the day Jesus enters Jerusalem, you probably remember it was the day when everybody was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the next thing he goes right to the synagogue because that is literally where the trade is occurring. But what is happening there is this thing that was supposed to be the day when everybody would choose the sacrifice that they were going to offer, he was presenting himself to them. What is interesting is that he doesn't choose himself. They choose him, but they just don't know that they were choosing him. So, Again, when the Lord is saying this, sorry. Yes, can you can you go over that again? <laughs> when you said they chose him, but they did not know. They were but they didn't know that. Him. Yeah. Okay, so the whole process of welcoming him into the city, right? Do you remember what they were saying or what they were crying out when when he came into the city? Does anybody remember? Does anybody remember? Does anybody remember? Do you want I to think check? Hosanna in the highest. Mm -hmm. in the highest. Hosanna Brass is the Hosanna one in the highest. Mm -hmm. Yes, that. Yeah, there was Hosanna in the highest to him. Blessed is the one coming. Absolutely. So when he went forth and found the court, I'm sorry, and the disciples simply, oh no, as he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him, and when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen, blessings on the king who comes 
in the name of the Lord. Some translations will actually say blessings on the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. The question is, why did they actually refer to him as the one that was to bring peace? Because if we go to the book of Leviticus, there was something called the peace offering. And the peace offering between man and God was only possible by the sacrifice of a lamb that was acceptable. I don't know if this is making sense. Is anybody it's making sense? <laughs> what? It's plenty. It's making sense. Yeah, it's making sense. So they proclaim that he's the Messiah. They proclaim that he's the one that brings peace. They proclaim these things, right? On the day when they are to choose the lamb for their household. And so even in the midst of all this conversation going on, there is a selection going on that we're actually not even, might not have been paying mind to. And I'll just go further and read. And then announce to the whole community, the family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood, divide the animal, according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select, listen to what it says, the animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. And I'm going to pause here and ask, can anybody remember what was said about Jesus when he was before Pilate? Something like I see no fault or no um, issue to be brought there before was no him. Guile. Absolutely. There was no guile. And he says that he washed his hands. No, probably going to be reading this side by side. But then he says, um, this is Luke, before Pilate, um, uh, verse 22, he says, and this is also another thing. This is also another selection process. process. Um, so I will have him flogged, then I will release him. No, you brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in, his, in your presence and find him innocent or without defect. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. That is, Herod found out that he was without blame or blemish of course, the one, and we'll probably get there, but then it's without blemish or it's without any defect or anything like that. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. So clearly you're seeing this, this lamb is innocent, absolutely doesn't deserve any death, right? Um, so I will have him flogged, then I will release him. And then a mighty roar rose up from the crowd and with one voice, they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. Choice, a selection takes place there again. 
But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, absolutely with one voice. Thank you so much. They shout with one voice. This takes us to Babel, you know. They shout with one voice, kill him, crucify him, um, crucify him. And for the third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him. But the more shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. Choice as one. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas' choice, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished choice. Selection. And so, you know, it's just like Rukeme said, and like Elshaka said, you know, with one voice, it's quite interesting because when you now think of one voice, you probably go back to Babel, that they had, they spoke in one accord, probably remember. And they said with one heart, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's, let's raise this thing up, you know, and make a name for ourselves. And so we see again here, no, we don't want, we've made our choice. Again, they choose on the day that they are supposed to choose, right? And so you see why at the beginning I said, this is so intentionally woven, intentionally woven. And now before we even go further, there's something I actually want to point out again that was mentioned in the book of Leviticus that I probably did not really think was a big deal. Leviticus 21 verse 10. In Leviticus 21, verse 10, we see something quite interesting. It says, the high priest has the highest rank of all the priests. The anointing oil has been poured on his head, which is quite interesting because when we think about the anointing, um, we think about the Messiah, right? Because Messiah literally means the anointed one. So when we think of the priest, as a matter of fact, um, there's something that I actually wrote, I think, I can't remember, maybe last year or so ago. It's supposed to be out sometime, sometime, sure. But, um, you know, I actually go in depth into the conversation around the anointed one and how this was a concept again in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, there was the anointed one, which is the Messiah, which is what we call the Christ. Um, so the Lord instructed a a Moses to make a particular type of ointment or a particular type of oil, which is also quite interesting because at the birth of Jesus, we see some of this oil mentioned, one of which is frankincense, and then we have myrrh. Um, it is also one of the, some of the oils that the Lord asked Moses to use to make the oils that will be used in anointing the kings and the priests. What is quite interesting is that this oil was so strong. Um, Yes, after this is being recorded. What is interesting about this oil is that it was so strong that if a person that has been anointed walks into a room, right, it will walk away from that place and that smell will still be there. It will still linger. And I actually want us to paint this picture in our minds because Paul actually says that to those that are being saved, we are like sweet smelling fragrance, right? Which is quite interesting because he was literally using the narrative or the narration of the 
Old Testament or the introduction of the aroma, he uses the word aroma before God, were like sweet aroma to those that are being saved. Now, there is the idea that he was narrating or the idea that he was introducing will take you back to what Moses was, what the Lord asked Moses to do. Make an incense from specific oils that will be used on only the priest and the king. And so when this oil is poured upon a priest or a king, it was almost impossible to not note that they were the anointed ones. That is, they had carried upon them the aroma of the Messiah. And it's quite interesting how this now transcends the ideology, the ideological perspective that we have of the Messiah as some wind or something that is hanging in the in the air, right? And it makes it so tangible that there is a there is a tangibility of the Messiah. There's a tangibility of Christ. There is an aroma. There is a smell that enables one that is spiritually awake to identify, right? But this identification was actually narrated from a very physical plane. So you can imagine what David smelled like after he was anointed by someone. And so that is what is being narrated here in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. And so even as, as people that walk with God, it's impossible for you to be opening your mouth to say, oh, I carry the spirit of Christ. You carry the spirit of Christ, but your life is producing a different aroma. And that's something to look at because it's not just tangible. It's not just intangible or abstract. It's very tangible, very real, very accessible. And so when we see in Leviticus 21 verse 10, it says the high priest has the highest rank of all the priests, the anointing oil, that is this incense that the Lord asked Moses to make for the priest and the kings, right? Has been poured on priestly, um, has been poured on his head. Remember again in Psalms, it says, how beautiful are those that, you know, how beautiful is it that when brethren actually unite, it is like the oil that pours upon Aaron and flows down to his beard. It's literally like that. And again, in that concept, we even see the concept of oneness or the concept of union or the concept of one, right? And so it says here, the anointing oil has been poured on his head and he has been ordained to wear the priestly garment. He must never leave his hair uncombed. Again, we go to Psalm 23 and says he anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over, but then even the anointing of the sheep is also a body, is a skincare regime for Mercedes that has the TW project, you know, is a skincare regime for, for the sheep. Is wow. <laughs> actually part of their skincare routine, right? Their head has to be anointed. So there is no entang entanglement. There is no, um, um, you know, they're not um, affected or infested by insects or any of these things. And so you see, even the oil, the head of the, priest you know um that that anointing oil upon the sheep was very significant because it wasn't just talking again about anointing it was talking about the incense you know um of 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 the messiah which the lord asked moses to prepare now interestingly he says that his hair must never be uncombed um he must he must never leave his hair uncombed or tear his clothing and so even when we go back again, let's just 
travel a little bit, we go back to the persecution of Jesus. And what do we see there? Jesus is before Pilate. And as Jesus is having a conversation with Pilate, there's this guy that is called Caiaphas, that is the high priest. <laughs> that is the high priest, is anointed as the high priest. I don't know if you remember. He's anointed as a high priest. And, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't just like what is going on here. And then what does he do? He tears his garments. But so, which is quite weird because in the book of Leviticus, when we're seeing it there, it looks like such an abstract thing. Like this Moses just likes to write, it just has too much ink or too much stone and time to carve into the stone. But then we see this specifically written here, serving as a testament, right? You can't say that you did not see this. But this is what is interesting because in Caiaphas rending his garments, what has happened? There had become a vacancy for the high priesthood. And so he was no longer fit to be the high priest. That era, that time was done. That season or that age, had come to a close and he had sealed it by committing an act that was going to be testified against by words that were spoken way before him. So you can see how in the narrative that was going on in the books of Moses, he wasn't just writing things. He wasn't just scribbling things down, right? He was actually writing things from, I like to believe that Moses wrote the entire five books from a place of foresight, not just hindsight, but then there was foresight and an understanding of what the Lord was doing. 